I'm Brandon Trost, and you're listening to the Cinematography Podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ben. Hey, hey Ilya. How's it going? <laughs> we, we both went at the same time right there. That we was, did. Uh, we don't yeah. plan these. It just goes to show how spontaneous and in, in <laughs> totally improvised. It's pretty sweet. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're, we're talking all over each other. So, uh, hey, it's time for another episode. It's going to be a great episode. We got Brandon Trust on, who it's, is I'm a, very excited to listen to this interview again because we recorded this interview in the before times. That's so, right. It was like a before time. Way back when we were allowed to just go sit in a table at your office and, uh, and shoot the breeze. That's look right. At, look each other in the eyes, not over any kind of webcam. There were no webcams involved in this interview. It is an organic interview recorded digitally. So yes, it, w- it was a little while ago, but uh, the timing is perfect because of course, Brandon's movie uh, that he directed, American Pickle, is now out on HBO. On HBO Max, right? You have to have HBO it, Max. Uh, HBO Max, excuse me. Yes, HBO yes. Max. So uh, everybody who's got HBO Max, definitely check it out. But Brandon Trust is just a phenomenal cinematographer with uh, a varied and kick-ass and cool resume. It, it, it was fun and kind of a pioneer in using smaller cameras and, and doing all kinds of interesting stuff that was kind of cutting edge. And so much fun to talk to. A lot oh, of fun. Yeah. And it's coming up uh, in just a couple minutes here. So, hey, uh, for our close focus today, I figured we should talk about something that I know you're a huge fan of, sports mm. ball. You're a big sports ball guy, right? What What is that? I don't know what sports is. Sports ball. Sports ball. <laughs> you don't know what sports is. Sports. Sports <laughs> is that crap that the high school was doing while I was in the drama department. And we were like off making real art. And it was just a bunch of lunkheads uh, going out and smashing their heads into each other. Right. That's sports, right? You know, uh, that that's a gross simplification. I know quite a few people who are into sports ball and uh, mm-hmm. sports ball. I'm being not one. A, you're not one. OK, so, uh, so so here's the thing. Really, I think that there is something magical about a great sport movie or a sports documentary, although, you know, they are I'll, rare. I'll actually give you that. I think I think sports movies and sports documentaries uh, lend themselves to drama because it's people going towards a goal. And in general, they're not going to show all the boring ass games that get them to that goal. So you're, you're really only seeing the dramatic moments. There was a, a great documentary about Muhammad Ali a long time ago called When We Were Kings. It's a great documentary. And uh, I just wish that the guy didn't just get punched in the face for a living. That's all. He seemed like quite a great <laughs> mind. And why not just punch punch that mind in the face for a living for years and years? You, you know, I'm gonna get um, I'm gonna get so much hate mail for this. I just can't. I just Muhammad Ali, you know, did a lot more than just get punched in the face. No, no, and, I agree. No, no, that's the thing his, is I feel yeah. like Muhammad Ali was like an amazing, brilliant person who he, had uh, a, uh, a, a, a voice and and kind of galvanized a whole generation. And I would have much preferred to see uh, Muhammad Ali, the playwright, than Muhammad mm. Ali, the guy that gets punched in the face for a living. All right. Well, uh, I, I bring this that up being said, that documentary is amazing and edge your seat stuff. And like for, for the people like me who only knew George Foreman from the George Foreman grill commercials, when you see like what a formidable uh, athlete he was, it's pretty amazing. Uh, well, there may be no more formidable athlete or athlete at the top of their game 
ever than Michael Jordan. And there's mm-hmm. a documentary that is co-produced by ESPN and Netflix called The Last Dance. And you can watch it right now on mm-hmm. Netflix. And it basically tells the uh, story of the dynasty of the Chicago Bulls. And unless you are completely under a rock or maybe not been born and not a fan of sports ball or basketball or any other sport and are somehow unaware of Michael Jordan or Air Jordan shoes or any of the other stuff that my, what or Michael Jordan Space is associated Jam. His movie Space, Space Jam, Jam, the Olympics. Yeah. Uh, it, here's the thing: it is a, his, it's his a, foray into baseball. His foray into baseball. Uh, all of this stuff gets covered in The Last Dance, and it is mm-hmm. an incredible documentary. In fact, I, I'll, I'll go out on a limb and say it is the you know the best eight hours of sports documentary I've ever seen. Whoa. And it is edge of your your seat type of stuff. And I gotta say, the editors are particularly brilliant for this. And even if you don't find yourself a fan of sports or basketball or Michael Jordan, I still think that you will find this documentary compelling because it has all the things that you want in a documentary. You get insider access, stuff that you don't usually see. Just as if you were watching a documentary about, you know, the moon landing or anything else, you're getting really, really inside, behind the scenes, behind the closed doors, all the stuff that wasn't out there in the public. You've got access to all the really key people, you know, Michael Jordan, his teammates, his coach, Everyone around him, people who were friends, people who are not friends, all mm. of these people are, 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 are in this when, whenever possible. Tons of archive footage, tons of stuff that, you know, all the stuff that you want to see from early on in life all the way up through the thing. And it meanders a bit into some really interesting side stories. And the editors who I, I can't imagine the project that they had ahead of them when they said, OK, we got, you know, 10 episodes to fill and on one hand, they probably went, no problem, we can fill 100 episodes. Or on, and on the other hand, they go like, well, how do we make this the best 10 episodes we can, we can possibly do? And they end up telling concurrent stories, starting sort of like from the beginning of Michael Jordan, also then from sort of like the end of Michael Jordan, his retirement, and sort of this backwards and forwards, you know, migration and flip-flopping back and forth. A and they do some, some migration, if you will. <laughs> anyway, uh, until they finally get to sort of this really wonderful culmination climax that happens. And I don't want to give it away. And I feel like that's kind of the best thing of a documentary, even though all of this is history, all this is well, you know, established and known. I don't want to give away any of the really good stuff and, you know, how complicated some of these people are and how really the the determination to win and never be satisfied and all kinds of other stuff that all kind of work in a way that uh, makes for great television, makes for great drama, makes for a great uh, understanding and story that you wouldn't have gotten if you uh, just, you know, read the newspaper or watched the games on TV or even read the occasional Sports Illustrated story. You would never get this story. And this story, uh, I think, will have broad appeal for anyone who gives it a try. Even you, Mr. No Sports Ball. I'll think about it. <laughs> All right. Well, you don't have much of an excuse. You have Netflix and you got I, you got you got hours of free time. I can tell. I, wait, I have hours of free time? <laughs> when do I have hours of free time? Come on, it's not like you're a dad to a small child or it's a I'll, pandemic I'll put or anything. My, my son in his uh, cryo sleep chamber and uh, watch movies for a few hours. Yeah. <laughs> I I have like Two hours of maybe could watch a movie at a time in my in my day, any given day. All right, no, but it's, well, it sounds great. And again, like I, I think that sports is always a good hinge for drama. There's some great sports movies, Bull Durham, Field of Dreams. Kevin Costner was also in not in some of the good ones. Mm. You know, uh, you didn't mention Varsity Blues. I didn't because actually I've never seen it. Oh, OK. Teen uh, Wolf. 
Teen Wolf Teen is a basketball movie. People don't remember that. <laughs> That's true. It's a Michael basketball J. movie. Michael J. Fox plays a basketball player, which I think is it's a pretty heroic thing to take Michael J. Fox, who I I think is actually living in my pocket right now. He's like six you, inches tall. You and, didn't mention uh, the Bad News Bears. I, d- I didn't. That's true. Yeah, no, so they're great news. sports movies and yeah. they're great sports documentaries. So I, I don't mean to crap on them. I just don't like watching sports. <laughs> okay. There are no good golf anything except for maybe Happy Gilmore. I don't know. Caddyshack. Come on. Yeah, Caddyshack. Sure. Yeah, it doesn't quite hold up. <laughs> uh, Bill Murray steals all the scenes. Bill Murray's so brilliant. And, and so does, uh, so does no, Rodney Dangerfield no and the gopher. <laughs> anyway. Okay. So, okay, moving uh, on. Let's get to our interview. Let's get to our interview here with Brandon Trust. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. All right, so I'm here with Brandon Trust. Thanks for having me. Uh, the first question I always ask everybody, and uh, given the kind of work that you do, I'm very curious to hear how you, how, uh, you answer this because uh, you have such a diverse body of work. But I believe that when you're handed a script, you look at it, you read it, and you're either thinking about the way it's going to look i.e. the lighting, or you're thinking about like the frames, the panels, the composition. So would you say that, and you could tell me I'm wrong too, that's a perfectly adequate answer, but do you, what is it that you see when you look at a script? Well, to be honest, when I read a script, um, I don't think about any of that. You know, I'm, I'm looking at a script for, for the story and just the way that it's told and how that's going to feel like just as a movie, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, yes, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, you know, this could look like this, this could, this could look like that. I, I mean, ultimately, it's like I'm looking to interpret the director's version of it, mm-hmm. no matter what it is. And, you know, I can pitch a couple of ideas that I think might apply this way or that way to a movie. But I'm really just kind of looking for the story and to see how it unfolds. And that really is what has always kind of driven me towards something. Just, you know, liking the script when it comes down to it. You know, I think that it's almost hard to. I mean, listen, you go in for a meeting, it depends on who you're, who you're meeting with director-wise. They, yeah. some, some directors are looking for a DP to come with like some sort of idea for a take on it, but I go for a meeting to hear what the director's first inter- you know, impression is that they want, and then yeah. we have a conversation and, and sort of bring it out to find out what it should be. Because I've always really thought of cinematography as, um, you know, this... It's like it's like it's like a tool for for the director to tell their story ultimately, and I think that the, the more clearly you can kind of communicate that, that's what builds the story. So, you know, once I'm on a movie and we're picking it apart and we're trying to figure out frames or shot listing or storyboards or whatever, then we kind of really get in and, and figure out what the sort of I don't know formula is that yeah. we choose for the film, and that's um, recipe. Yeah, basically, you know, that, and that's kind of how it's usually been for me. Whenever we're doing one of these interviews, a lot of times I'll look at somebody's body of work and say, like, what's the common thread? And firstly, you've shot so many movies. It's 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 kind of a daunting number of films that you've shot. But you've shot things in like that are wild laugh out loud comedies. You've shot the most hardcore kind of horror movies. Well, maybe not the most hardcore, but the most hardcore that would get play in movie theaters. And you've also shot stuff, you know. Uh, like Oscar caliber stuff with, you know, that that's very actor driven, but it seems to me and and correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like a lot of, in a lot of cases, your cinematography is taking, it's taking as its lead, the characters. Your, your cinematography feels like a character in every movie that you do. Is, is that something you take a cue from at all? A little bit. You know, I think that, um, you know, I've, I've always wanted to jump around from genre to genre. That's something that I just love, love to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, ultimately, I just love making movies. And I think that that isn't just sort of slave to one specific type or kind. And I've never wanted to 
you know, it, it, it's easy for, I think, a DP to have a certain style or a certain look. And when you yeah. watch their films, it's kind of like, oh, you can tell that like that person shot this film. And that was something early on I was not actively avoiding, but not wanting to try to fall into that yeah. sort of, um, I don't know, comfort zone, if that makes sense. So I, you know, I always kind of wanted it to feel like, and I, you know, I don't think I'm always successful in this, but <laughs> I'd like you to watch the different movies I've done in the different genres that I've done and think that maybe a different DP shot each one of those movies. You know, mm-hmm. that, that's something that I've always really sort of strive to do because I'm not trying to bring a specific look that I want to bring to any of these movies. It's like, I think the movie tells me the way it should look or feel yeah. in, in concert with the director, you know, it just, and I think that that's kind of the perspective I always take, you know, I'm, I mean, I'll line up a shot and, and light it in a way that I think is ugly because I think it fits the scene and the character better just because, and I know that it's wrong traditionally speaking, but I think that it just feels right in the story and in the moment and the scene that we're trying to tell. So, and, and I've always kind of leaned toward as many different genres as I could, just cause I also think it's fun. Like it's just as fun to do a romantic comedy as it is to do some sort of, you know, sci-fi dramatic thriller. Yeah. yeah. It's just fun to jump around and have, and have it, have a challenge. You know, I think that every time I've done something different, it's also scared me because I, if it's something I hadn't done before, I also sort of feel like any chance I can do to, I don't know, put some stress on my abilities. <laughs> it always, I've always been, you know, happier with the results anyway. And we're going to get into kind of the individual films, but not all uh, DPs or directors or even actors or writers get to hop around genre wise nearly as much as you have or really at all. Like most people get like pigeonholed in one thing. It's like, you know, you make kids films and then that, you know, like you have to break out of that. But it seems and I don't know what your personal what efforts you went through to kind of do that. But how would you recommend somebody even look at looking at a career doing that? Uh, would approach being able to kind of move through genres because you know again you know from horror to comedy to kind of prestige stuff to kind of comic book stuff like those are those are big swings to me and I don't really have an answer to be honest Mm -hmm. like I um for whatever reason the the way that especially when I first started shooting studio movies the way that my career laid out was sort of just fortuitous in the way that I got those different jobs. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I wasn't specifically even looking for one genre or the next. It just sort of fell into, you know, the first studio movie that I shot was Crank Two High Voltage. You know, and that and which I, can, I definitely want to talk a lot about. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. I have, I have a lot. There's a lot to talk about. <laughs> but then that led to Rob Zombie and meeting with him, and then getting Halloween Two, and then that led to. MacGruber and you know Yorma ultimately I think hired me for MacGruber because I was not a comedy DP for that movie specifically and Mm. like I mean that's a that's action to horror to comedy just within the first three studio films I had done just right off the bat and and that was all that was just kind of like luck I guess I just sort of fell into those different jobs and it, it just kind of kept rolling from there to be honest like you know, I love jumping around from genre to genre, but it's also kind of been, as much as I've worked, it's also been kind of difficult. It kind of confuses people. So they don't really <laughs> know what to throw me in the mix for in terms of like what movies to shoot or put me up for, or put me on what list for this or that. I mean, it's, that's changed in recent years just because yeah. I think I've shot as much as I have. But when I was first kind of getting started out, that was definitely a thing um, that was a challenge career-wise, weirdly enough. Interesting. I mean, I always think about people like Ron Howard or Danny Boyle as directors who who just don't seem to stick in one genre. Yeah. And a lot of people say they want to do it, but it's like it's really hard. So uh, before we even get into the the crank too and all the stuff, let's go a little bit back into your background. Uh, when when was the moment in your life that you realized this was the direction you wanted to go in? 
I, I grew up in the industry. You know, my dad does special effects, and that's how I... Oh, really? What, yeah. what, what kind of stuff? Uh, like uh, mechanical special effects, mechanical practical effects. So oh, wow. anything you would shoot on film like uh, or on set, like wind, rain, fire, explosions, wire work. You know, so any, still any doing that it? Stuff. He's still doing it, yeah. Oh, wow. Um, and we work together often, actually. Oh, sweet. Yeah. So I grew up with him on sets as a kid. I mean, I, I, mean, I think I can't even remember the first set that I was on. I mean, somewhere there's a picture of me and as like a one-year-old infant in Jonathan Winter's arms on the set of Mork and Mindy. Whoa! <laughs> I mean, it's like there's uh, so it's always been there. And I think that because yeah, because my dad worked in this, I mean, he did, when you're a little kid, special effects is the coolest job in the world. Of course. I mean, so blowing shit up. Yeah. And that's just, it's like my dad, especially. So it was like, I was always, I was always just charmed by the, mm-hmm. the magic of the industry, I think. And um, seeing what my dad did, and knowing it from the inside, knowing that movies were made in this specific way so young, like I never had that sort of like fantastic thing where you see a movie and it's just like this thing that it feels like it's just real. I always knew it was fake, if that makes sense. Like, did you know it was fake before you connected as a kid? Like the movies you see in the theater, you already knew that your dad had like, yeah, you know. Absolutely. Because he would come home and say, see, even if we like, you know, we used to watch um I'm sure we, we watched movies that were uh, higher ratings than we should have watched as young kids, I think. Um, Me too. But, um, which I'm also thankful for. But uh, my dad was always there to say, hey, see this? This is fake. Uh, you want to know how we do it? We do it like this. This is how it happens. And it was, and honestly, knowing the tricks behind it made me that much more fascinated by it when I was a kid. Did that ruin horror movies for you? No, it didn't. My grandfather ruined horror movies. Really? Sorry, it's total sidetrack. But I saw a movie called The Changeling. I think oh, it was the Changelings, hor- the George C. Scott. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That movie's horrifying. Yeah, it's, it's terrifying. Wonderful. I saw it when I was like nine years old, and it scared, <laughs> wow. scared the crap out of me. And I was telling my grandfather that, and he's like, "Oh, what's to be afraid of? Like, you know, those people that were making it, they're like in a room somewhere with a camera. You think they were afraid of it?" And I was like, at nine, I was like, "Oh, I guess they probably weren't." Hmm. Ruined him. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It just it didn't ruin ruin it for me. If anything, I liked them more. You know, I, I just I grew up watching a lot of movies. That was always my favorite thing to do. Um, watching my home, going to the theater. Was your father was your father into movies? Because I always encounter people who like work in films and are like, I don't like watching them. I just work. You know, blah blah blah. I feel like you get, there's like a crusty pride, and I don't watch the stuff I make. No, I, I, he 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 does like movies, and um, I, I do think that you know. Myself, my my brother and sister and I, the three of us really, uh, I think, absorbed it that much more. You know, I mean, all all three of us also work in the film industry. I mean, my sister's a costume designer. My brother is also a filmmaker. And we all sort of oh, grew wow. up doing this together. And um, I think we all just really dug our heels in in mm-hmm. this way that it, there was no way that we were not going to work in the film industry. You know, I think I thought I was going to do effects for a while until I think the sort of, you know, the love of movies just in general really sort of showed that, you know, I wanted more, a little more of a creative, uh, a little more of a creative position in the process, you know, which is, which was actually a, a thought my dad gave me when I was in high school. He was like, you should be a DP. He's like, really? what? That's, what are you talking about? He's like, yeah, it's like the way you talk about movies, the way that you just are, it's like, you remind me of DPs I've worked with. You should look into it. I'm like, really? Oh. All right. Were you taking pictures or? No, I wasn't. That's the thing. And I, I, I didn't. Um, I he didn't, just thought that you had the personality type of a DP. He did. And I think he just sort of saw my, my um, I think just the way that I would watch films and sort of dissect them and pull them apart and kind mm-hmm. of talk about just uh, just filmmaking in general, I think. I think it was just the sort of creative process that I understood, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, I just started researching and looking into it. And it seemed like a good fit, I guess, for whatever reason. <laughs> and I... Uh, 
I, I went for it. I went into film school right out of high school. Like I graduated high school and then dropped right in. I went to the LA Film School. LA Film School? Yeah. So let's get into Crank 2 because the first crank is kind of banana pants and then Crank 2 is insane. Like it is just, it's a very inventive experimental movie to be a studio film and you guys were if i'm not mistaken you were experimenting with uh using dv or something at the time using cameras that weren't typically used in filmmaking it's it's true but to to add to how crazy crank 2 is on top of crank 1 the first ad bill clark was the same first ad as uh he works for tarantino and when i was in new orleans when we were shooting this is the end where they were making um Django Unchained at the same time. So we would always end up hanging out at a lot of the same places. Oh, cool. Ended up meeting Tarantino, and he introduced me to him, Bill Clark did, and he told him that I had shot Crank 2, and even Tarantino was like, holy shit, he's like, you shot Crank 2? He's like, Crank 2 is the Gremlins 2 of action movies. That is the perfect way to describe <laughs> and it's like, And he's like, and I mean that as a compliment. I'm like, I take that as a compliment. That is exactly right. And that's I've kind of been describing it like that ever since because I think that really is that's a kind of sums one. it up. Yeah. Gremlins 2, I think, uh, separate conversation. The new but, batch. Uh, yeah. a, a, a horrifically underappreciated horror, oh, scene, I, horror I, sequel. I, I love that movie. <laughs> I saw it twice in the theater. Oh, I think I did too. Yeah. Yeah, that t- the uh, the time when uh, Hulk Hogan just breaks the fourth wall and just kind of uh, <laughs> turns around and yells out, yells back at everybody. <laughs> so it's fantastic. Weird. Um, but yeah, Crank Two. So we were. It was a whole um, the whole concept that you know Mark and Brian wanted to bring toward it was that we had this sort of fast paced action movie, which it is. It's just it's crazy. It's about a guy who has to electrocute his heart uh, every single you know few minutes just so that he can stay alive. Um, and uh, you know, just the energy behind that is it just as a concept can't couldn't have been done. I think. With the same result, unless we did it the way we did, we shot with these little HDV cameras, these Canons that were available at the time, and uh, which was a camera that I liked and actually had already shot a couple of features on at the time. Like I'm, I was so I was familiar familiar with it. But you know, Mark and Brian have a very specific aesthetic that's super aggressive and like abrasive, yeah. you know, by design. And we, you know, we essentially shot a whole action movie like a skate video. You know, the the movie is like. Grand Theft Auto meets Wiley e. Coyote, and like the only way that we could like capture that was to be right in the middle of the action. I mean, everything that you see, the cameras all had these wide-angle, you know, almost fisheye lens adapters on them, and we shot with a really short shutter that gives you this really sort of staccato, crisp look. I mean, we even cranked up the electronic detail in all the cameras, it baked it in, which is something that almost nobody ever does, and <laughs> we did it then at all. We wanted it to look electric, and every single scene is, an, is like a set piece, is like an action scene in that movie. So every single day was exactly that. It was a set piece, and it was just like so fast. We shot the movie in 30 days. Wow. And uh, we had so many cameras. I mean, we were always rolling three hero cameras. It would be me and Mark and Brian operating always. Mm-hmm. Um, if we had a stunt going off, we would plant all these little smaller cameras around everywhere. I mean, I think there was a stunt where we shot like with 22 cameras at the same time. Wow. At one time, at one point. <laughs> yeah. There's like a scene where Statham runs into a house and like just starts kicking ass, and you see limbs fly out of windows and bodies are falling out, stunts from people are blasting out of the walls, and all that <laughs> happened in one take. It's crazy how many shots we kind of cut to, but like all of that was oh, from wow. the angles, and that's the only way we could get to these days is if we did it that way, setting it up and just kind of like do the stunt. It's like, and okay, how are you lighting on. for for that many cameras? You're just hoping that the sun's in the right spot. I mean, that's, so was it mostly <laughs> part of the just, reason why the whole movie takes place during the day? Yeah, were, I mean, like, were you basically just kind of dealing with available light as much as you could? Mostly, you know, but we also were had, we also had kind of a contrasty look. So I'd have to fill um, just to sort of get detail out of these cameras. And we, I mean, we had a really great um, colorist who helped us out too, um, Siggy Furstel. At um, at the time, I think it was Riot. He works at Company Three now. He's great. 
he did Popstar also. But he really like leaned into the sort of HD digital capabilities. And it's like, where the highlights burned out, it's like he really burned them out. So it looked like that was like the look that we were after. And it had this really <laughs> kind of crispy, yeah. just edge to it. And so we definitely, we just always kept it hard and contrasty and very sharp to so sort of lean into that when you're aggressive shooting something style. Like, that, like in the dailies are going out, is the studio like coming to you and being like, what are you guys doing? And the studio, I don't. I think they just kind of had to wash their hands of what was going on because, like, there was no way to keep up with what we were doing. I mean, because we were shooting so many cameras and rolling so much throughout the day. I mean, oftentimes in our days, we would have more hours in the daytime that we shot of just dailies. So if we're shooting a 12-hour day, there's like maybe 14, 15 hours worth of dailies to get through every wow. single day. Just And so the studio is like... That sounds like an editing uh, yeah. challenge. Yeah, because I would set cameras because I knew that like I could set a camera in one place and just roll it for a take knowing that it would get like one little sliver of action where a car like barrel rolls through an intersection and that's all that the shot's waiting for. But yeah. you know, you have to sit through it and find all these pieces. I mean, it was definitely kind of like a needle in the haystack editing that movie together and it was crazy for them to do. But um, you feel that like aggression in the movie throughout it. I mean, it was a crazy experience. <laughs> I've, I've never been a part of anything uh, like it. So that was since. like your, your first studio film. But at it that was. point, uh, I don't know if you have an exact number, but about how many features had you shot before you got to that studio feature? Maybe, f- I don't know, 15? Really? Like that. But uh, from varying, in varying sizes. I mean, that, that could be like a, a $50,000 feature that shot in, you know, 12 or 15 days to like a couple million dollar indie film that was maybe 20 or 25 days it's like it's all it was all over the place Um, not to get too in the weeds about tech but like were most of these digital films or were you shooting on on film at that point you're kind of coming up in an era where we're phasing out but but really digital hasn't taken over yet right and it was it was both my first couple features were hd but you know i shot up from like 16 and 35 i mean I i had to learn both when i was getting into it because digital hadn't taken over yeah yet and uh, although I was never shy for digital, you know, there was always, um, as it was making the transition, there was a huge stigma over like, you know, film forever. It's never going to oh, die. Yeah. And I would be I like, remember. man, this, I was like, this stuff can look pretty good. We can do different stuff with this. I can also give it a cinematic style that's pretty close. Like, let's, let's figure this out. And so I think I always had that attitude about it, mm-hmm. which helped me out. You know, it, I think it ended up getting me more work because I, I, I had a knack for, helping digital look a little more cinematic at the time than mm-hmm. people um, were used to it looking like, which was usually just kind of flat and electronic because, you know, for whatever reason, that's just what a lot of it looked like at the time. <laughs> <laughs> so Crank 2 gets you to Halloween 2, and uh, I, I, won't, I won't bog us down with all the questions that I would have about working with Rob Zombie, but I've worked with an AD once who had worked with on, uh, I think he worked on the first Halloween and he said, Rob Zombie just likes to keep the camera rolling as much as possible. Like, is that like, Alex Gaynor? Uh, his name is John Pontarelli. He goes by Punch. What he told me was that Rob Zombie just like, he, like he just is constantly pushing to be, to be rolling as much as possible. You shot two features for him, right? Halloween 2 and Lords of Salem. What's it like working with him? Because I, I feel like there's something super visionary in his work. Like he is really finding a texture and a look and a feeling that's completely his own. I love working with Rob. I mean, mm. I mean, to this day, he's one of my favorite directors I've ever worked with. And I, I know that not everyone would probably say that, if that mm. makes sense. I, I think that it takes a certain uh, personality to work with Rob specifically because he is really demanding and he is really um, opinionated with what it is that he wants to do. 
but he's also... That's also how you get something so distinctive. Exactly. And, and I think I was treated it that way and always wanted to lean into that as much as possible and just mm-hmm. help him find it. And, and, and I think we ultimately got to a point where we were sort of, when we were working together, making each other better as we were both trying to figure out these scenes and how to shoot them and what to do. And it's he does like to roll a lot and he does like to get a lot of different angles. And, you know, when we did Halloween 2, I, I kind of treated it like... Uh, I almost treated it like we were shooting on digital, even though we were shooting on film. You know, we shot on 16 millimeter, uh, which was something that he just wanted to do. I was like, yeah, cool, great. That sounds perfect. I love 16. <laughs> um, we pushed everything one stop on that movie, which is something you don't normally do with 16 because it makes it extra grainy. But because of that, we got extra... But extra grainy is kind of on his business card. Yeah, exactly. You know, I was, I'm like, I'm cool. Let's do that too. Yeah. But because that gives us more... Uh, we can shoot with lower light as well because of that, which mm-hmm. we needed to. I mean, we would walk into rooms and I would say there's like three practical light bulbs on. It's like, all right, that's the light for this scene. I would basically light spaces and then get out of the way because I knew that we would be shooting 360 in these rooms no matter what. It was handheld. And while we might be looking one way with one camera, I'd have another camera like on the other side of the room or an opposite direction pointing that same way. And it's like, we might hold one take for one camera and then he's like that was good on the one camera bounce it somewhere else but keep this other one for a second take it's like okay and then we put the other camera on the other side like we would get so much coverage of these shots in these scenes that it just has this real just I don't know it's like a real loose handheld um, almost voyeuristic approach to the way that the movie feels and um it was really, it was, I mean, it's, it's dark. I mean, I let it go really dark <laughs> in some of those scenes in ways where I was scared. You know, like I remember at one point my camera operator, um, BJ McDonald, came up to me one night. There's this, there's a scene where um, Laurie Strode's walking down a street in the rain. It's like at the beginning of the movie before the cop pulls up and, uh, and, 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 gets her and he came up to me and said look I can't see anything it's like what do you mean it's like like I literally cannot see anything in the viewfinder because the, the optics in the viewfinder are darker than what the video taps able to upgain and spit out to the to the to the monitor that the, at video village uh-huh. so we're ba- barely seeing at video village he can't see anything I was like just uh go for it and um <laughs> And it turned out awesome. But like, I mean, I was scared. <laughs> it was just, it was not your average, you know, it's easy to get into a, I think as a DP, it's easy to fall into, uh, I know where the safety values are to shoot in. It's like, I'm going to play it safe and I know it'll be exposed here and there and it's going to look nice and perfect if I do this. But once you go like outside of that threshold, it's, it's nerve wracking. Cause it's like, especially when it's on film, cause you could, I don't know, you could just fuck up and all of a sudden you've got something that you can't even see. I mean, we yeah. lost a whole day on Halloween too, because some of the film got shipped back to LA to be processed and got x-rayed in a, in a really bad way. Oh shit. You and have to reshoot it, everything. We had to reshoot a whole day and it was like the hardest day of the whole movie. It's like, uh. there's a scene where the van runs over a cow in a big field and like, and like Michael Myers comes out and cuts a dude's head off. Like it was all, it was such a big, big day and we had to redo the whole thing. That's a bummer. But, uh, I mean, it's interesting to hear cause we're in like the era of digital grading by then everything was, yeah. was heavily graded. And so there's kind of a sense of shoot it in post. And it's interesting to hear like, you know, I, th- I think that a lot of DPs kind of push against that and are like, no, let's get it as close as we can to what we want it to look like on set. And especially if you're shooting on film, you kind of have yeah. to do that. I definitely try to get stuff as close as I, as, as close as it can be within like a, you know. 10 or 15 percent i just try to get it as close as possible because i know it's going to save time later on in the di when i'm trying to make make things match but i was going to say about working with rob is that i mean rob really is uh i mean the the dude's an artist like he just Mm -hmm. is and he has a very specific idea about what he wants but he also has a very like flexible and fluid approach for it you know like we'll we'll step into a scene and not know exactly where we're going to shoot because he likes to sit there and look at the set look at the set dressing see where everyone's going to be and he definitely sort of 
mix it all together and find it almost like in the moment and then sort of like act on it mm-hmm. in, this, in this way. And um, it's just really fun, you know, and then we and then we ended up sort of taking that style and kind of abandoning it almost completely for Lords of Salem for a very specific look, which I'm weirdly enough, maybe even more proud of <laughs> with how that movie turned well, out. Why is that? Well, I mean, we, we wanted the movie to be uh, a little more like a European horror film from like the late 60s, early 70s. You know, we were looking at films like, you know, like like The Tenet, like Suspiria, like mm-hmm. The Devils was a big um, sort of guide for us visually. And, um, you know, it's very, it's still, it's kind of a slow burn, you know, it's very composed. It has, it has like a little more of a, like a rooted sort of like thought almost dreadful approach to yeah. it. And I just feel like that's harder to do than just throwing a couple of handheld cameras in a room and getting as much stuff as you can and then and then and then finding it later. Like we had to be very, very specific and it was um it was just really rewarding. It's kind know. of a rosemary's baby vibe to that. A little film. bit of that too, yeah. Absolutely. And um I, I just think that the f- tone, like the feeling of that movie, I still am a huge fan of. I'm mean, it's one of my favorite films I've ever shot. It's the first time I ever shot Anamorphic as well, which I had sort of been waiting for the right digital movie to shoot it on because, you know, I'd never shot Anamorphic on film and you're always scared about not having enough light because if your focus puller is not, you know, up to snuff, you can kind of, it's just, it's tricky to deal with on like a (laughs) indie level, I guess. And that on Lords of Salem, I cranked up, uh, we shot on the red one, the MX, Mm -hmm. and I cranked it up to 3200 ISO for the whole movie. And that made it super noisy, which I loved, which I've, I've always been a fan of. Like, I'm not, I've never been afraid of having noise even induced and burned into the image. And again, that gives you so much more latitude to shoot with lower light. And I could use these older anamorphic lenses that have to be closed down a little bit to function, but I still had like more than enough light to do that. And it was just really eye opening and kind of. I've shot most movies anamorphic ever since, to be honest. Oh, cool. <laughs> yeah. But it's, there's something really special about that movie, I think. So your first foray into comedy was MacGruber, or, or studio comedy, I should say. First studio comedy was MacGruber, for yeah. sure. And that, that MacGruber definitely changed the trajectory of my career. I think I fell into MacGruber through the line producer, whose name is Patty Long. Mm-hmm. And I think she knew of me back when I was doing some horror stuff. I used to work with this company called Neo Art and Logic. Um, they used to do like a lot of like dimension, like straight to video movies and oh, stuff cool. like that. So I did, uh, I did the, like, I think I did pulse two and three with those guys. And I did this, actually this cool movie called, he was a quiet man. This, uh, I was looking at, I watched Christian the, Slater the trailer for that today. Yeah. Yeah. It was, which is pretty cool. I like that. That was like one of the first movies I did that I think felt like a real movie at, at the time. But anyway, I think she knew me if through those people, whatever she hooked me up with Yorma for a meeting. And I was also super aware of Yorma at the time and the Lonely Island. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was a fan of those guys. I mean, this is 2008, I guess, when we met at the time. And but so the first album would come out, but I was a fan of theirs from all their internet shorts and all their YouTube stuff from before, yeah. before they even got on SNL. I was like aware of their thing. So I remember I was, them I was, doing the boo. That was them, right? Yes. <laughs> I remember a friend of mine, and then like two years later, being like, "Oh, that's the guy from the boo who's yeah. on SNL." So I mean, I think that because of that, and also I had made some like phony fake trailers and music video stuff that kind of like I'd done, done some of that stuff myself, you know, with like my brother and sister and, and and other people, and and so we sort of spoke the same language when we met, and we just hit it off, and um, you know, I knew that he, I knew that the joke was McGruber needed to look like a legit action movie. It needed like half the joke was that it looked like this, you know, Simpson Bruckheimer '80s action film, and, and even though McGruber's like 
I mean, you, you would call MacGruber an action comedy, but there's barely any action in the movie at all. I mean, if you think about it, we kind of just shot it in a way where it feels like there's action yeah. always, no matter what. <laughs> but like, you know, there's a couple of shootouts and like a, like a car burns out or something and there's, there's an explosion. So we got that. <laughs> but um, how did that happen? I mean, I think he hired me again because I had the action experience, the mm-hmm. horror experience. You know, he also knew from everything else I was involved in. He just kind of knew that I could pull it off. But we... We just hit it off. We became fast friends. I mean, we're still, you know, really good friends to this day. And it's funny, like MacGruber, in a way, also taught me a lot about comedy, I think, in, in this one moment specifically. I remember when I first met Yorm. I came in for a second meeting because I had to meet the brass. I had to meet Lorne Michaels. So I'm sitting there in, it's, it's at the Paramount lot. It's the Lorne Michaels, um, Michaels Goldwyn office. Uh, I think John Goldwyn was there, Lorne Michaels, Yorma. Will Forte and John Solomon, who's one of the writers as well. We're also having this, this, this little powwow, which is kind of like my final interview to get the job. And But it's very it's very strange. I mean, I kind of like don't know what to do. I'm sitting there. <laughs> There's Lorne Michaels, and he's sort of just holding court. And I didn't realize or understand or know that Dr. Evil is Lorne Michaels. I had oh, no yeah. idea. And once he started <laughs> speaking, I was like, wait, is this? I was like, oh. Like, it, literally, the light bulb went off. It just, like, clicked. It was such a weird moment to have in the middle of a meeting with the guy. It was always very nice and very cool and easy to easy to get on with, but it was like we didn't really talk much about the movie at all. At one, but at one point, he just started talking about the way certain, a certain movie looked, and I was like, "Yeah, I mean, that looks like a comedy. That's not what we want to do." But I'm not saying that. I'm just thinking it because I know what we want to do. At one point, he says, "But I, he's, he he like does the the you know the Doctor Evil thing with his hands, and he goes, I just want to make sure everyone's perfectly clear that we're not making an art picture.'" And he just looks me in the eyes. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, nope, going to be a comedy, going to look funny. And um, so uh, the meeting, you know, disbands or whatever. And I go go aside with Yorma and I was like, so we we want this movie to look like Die Hard, right? Like, that's the whole thing. And, and Yorma's like, oh, yeah, 100%. Like, we're going to do that. I was like, okay, I'm just, I'm telling you, I'm going to do that at least for the first couple of days until these guys freak out and tell us that that's wrong. We shouldn't be doing it. But let's just, let's just see what happens <laughs> you can give comedies a look you can let comedies be serious you really don't have to treat them like they're you don't have to handhold like the look in this way to tell people that it's funny like yeah. the humor is going to come out of it i think maybe even more so if you give it more of a, a realistic like dramatic stake to it and i think that's ultimately what led to getting hired for this is the end which again was like another sort of level up for me career-wise you know once i met um seth rogan and evan goldberry and worked with those guys so like and i just kind of kept that same theory going you know i, I never wanted to shoot a comedy just to, to look like a comedy for comedy's sake i mean i'm the closest that i i think came to that was with that's my boy you know, which with, with the Adam Sandler movie, but it's like they also want a very specific sort of feeling with the uh, Adam Sandler film. So it was like, yeah. you know, doing my best to sort of work within that formula, I guess. I mean, but, do you find, yeah, I, I mean, I think all there are several comedy cliches. One is that like you tend to hang on wider angles or just wider shots, even if they're on longer lenses because you're giving the, the actors room to physically move around or improvise or whatever the physical comedy is coming from. Did you intentionally go down any paths like that, even though you're kind of lighting it more like a Jerry Bruckheimer kind of a thing? 
Not really. I kind of ignored all that and just really? wanted to shoot it just straight up like an action movie. I just, I mean, you don't want to miss the joke ultimately. So I'll, I'll definitely set the frame to catch that. If there's a physical part of it that we have to keep, we will. But also part of the joke is making it look like an action movie and make yeah. like, like everyone taking it themselves way too seriously is the whole gag with MacGruber. Totally. It's like, we always had the camera moving. We all, we shot in a lot of long lenses. It's like, if we could wet something down, we would, if we could mm. add smoke, we would, if, if, if there's backlighting, we could do it. It's like, if we could uh, be on a steady cam and, and just make something look action cool, all the angles are low. I mean, there's kind of like a, just like a list of just basic action, action movie, you know, conventions, lens flares, you know, like yeah. all that, like all that stuff he can just throw into the look. And then that was, I mean, that was what we did. And also like a lot of my favorite movies growing up as a kid were just old eighties action films. I mean, I loved all those movies. I grew up on it. And I think that's my love of that too. Probably was part of, part of what got me the job. I mean, that was something that I didn't even need to look at reference materials to basically give McGruber the look that it was. It was just, I just knew that was what it needed to feel like just based off of my sheer love of that genre mm. you know and you can kind of just go through and go and just sort of make a checklist of all those things that make a make an action movie and hope that we could pull it off fast and cheap because we didn't have a lot of time or money to make that movie really yeah i mean i think it was just under a 10 million dollar movie that we shot in like 28 days or something what? like that i mean it That's was crazy um, yeah it was it was fast i mean we were sprinting for the finish line every single day oh man it was tough and and i imagine too well this is this is how i imagine their world is that there's a lot of ad-libbing and improv going on and so uh, how does that impact the way that you work? Well, you just have to know that it's coming. Mm -hmm. you, know, you have to know that you're going to get a take that might be anywhere from 20 to 30 or 40 minutes long, depending on what your camera can handle and, <laughs> oh, and, really? and how long your, uh, your actors can come up with different shit to say. Really? <laughs> like, uh, yeah, I mean, I think one of my favorite... I'm, I'm really actually in terms of like improv comedy, I'm actually really proud of how the interview turned out mm -hmm. to be honest. Like it was, um, it's, it's so much improv and so much crazy improv that Seth and Franco were doing in that movie, but we still wanted it to feel very like political thriller. Like we wanted it to have this almost, you know, Michael Mann, Tony Scott kind of vibe to it. And again, that almost got into like MacGruber style in a certain way with like longer lenses and lots of foreground yeah. and, you know, um, well, and again, the, the look is part like of the that. joke. Like the the your work is working for the comedy in a way by working against what comedy would be like in a in a like a Michael Mann movie is not a funny movie, right. but to set a funny circumstance in a Michael Mann world is hilarious. Exactly, and um, you know it's and we wanted very specific style to that movie, and like it's just it's just a puzzle to figure out how to maintain that kind of look because you know that you're going to improv for it, it's just it's limiting with blocking, it's limiting with a lot of different things. You know, you have to keep the actors relatively in the same place to, to just improv back and forth because yeah. that's the only way you can intercut the stuff together. So we would try to devise ways to get like some kind of graceful cinematic move that gets us into a scene and then we know that you might use that in the cut and then maybe or maybe an outro that gets us out of the scene or something like that. And then when we do the shots in the middle, you just have them fixed and we just we just run it. You just mm -hmm. let it run. And you, again, you light the space so that there's a little bit of flexibility so they're not just totally fixed to what's going on. But everyone knows that if it's going to cut together, it has to kind of stay sort of the same. So it's part of, you know, every, everyone in this case, they're also filmmakers so they know what they have to do to make this thing work yeah <laughs> they know they can't go totally off the rails unless it's like in a wider shot where we can kind of capture everything i mean it's just i don't know i'd almost say it doesn't totally change what i'm doing necessarily lighting wise and camera wise just knowing that you have to just stick to it and hold it out while you uh, let them improv i mean we made the choice to shoot neighbors primarily handheld for example mm -hmm. and after the first two days my, my operators are like we can't do this anymore 
like this because they're holding these cameras handheld for like 20, 25 oh, minutes yeah. at a time. That and I was sense. like, and then we're doing that all day long. And I was like, oh man. So we figured out this, we ended up building like a speed rail post. That they would rest their hands on, like they would get into <laughs> position and then like a dolly grip would like prop it in and they would plant on it and keep the handheld like look going. And that was how we survived. And again, that was just like a style that we chose and we ended up sticking with it. But um, it ultimately just comes down to the length of the take, <laughs> I guess, when it comes down to it. Uh, when you're, I mean, because I feel like that whole group of people, and I don't know any of them, but they're coming at it primarily from a performance uh, and writing angle. How much of the, of like the filmmaking did they also bring to the table? How much did they ask you to bring to the table? Well, This Is The End was... Um, Seth and Evan's first thing they'd ever directed. Yeah. I, I don't think they directed anything at that point, but they're obviously very, very talented comedy writers. But they're smart filmmakers, you know, and, and, I, and I've been able to work with them long enough where I've also seen their ability just grow exponentially, which has been weirdly amazing and sort of proud to watch <laughs> in a way. Um, so on This is the End, I mean, you know, I was definitely uh, leaned on to, to help figure out the, the blocking and the shots and all of that. But I was happy to do it, you know, because like everyone is, they're such a collaborative team. It was like we were all just there to do the best job that we could. And we wanted this movie to look like a horror action comedy. I mean, we were yeah. referencing like Apocalypse Now and <laughs> The Thing and, you know, all this like weird <laughs> dark shit for this movie. And I was kind of holding them to it <laughs> the whole time. And uh, but we also had to shoot with three cameras a lot on that because it's six very funny dudes in a room together and it's like you have to figure out ways to shoot it so that you can at least have a fighting chance to cut it all together um and i was just I, you know i was definitely i'd say helpful in that process but i do think that even the difference in their uh, experience from that movie into what we stepped into on the interview i mean just their filmmaking knowledge is just shot through the roof they're they're such talented guys and you know they also just have a, such a love of film and comics and just media and they're smart <laughs> and they know they know what it is that they want to do and it's just like uh you know i'm just i'm happy to work with them every time because i know we're going to get into something just totally different and unique every single time we do it so uh two other cinematography projects of yours that i i definitely want to hit are can you ever forgive me and barry barry uh well, let's start with barry because barry uh honestly surprised the hell out of me uh and again you're working with someone who is uh primarily known for acting uh, Bill Hader, who has actually moved into directing that show, uh, he's direct. He directed one of the most interesting episodes of it that I in in the second season that I've ever seen. But that show hits a tone that I think is like threading a needle on top of another needle. It's so hard to get the tone right because it's impossibly dark and also really funny. And how do you do it? Like how do you, how did you approach the material? Because I feel like they veered a little bit to the right it would feel like they were making fun of the acting class and it would fall into farce and be ridiculous. If you're a little bit to the left, that thing is too dark and morbid to, to be amusing at all because it, because it goes so dark. How did you balance that? I mean, I have to really give most of the credit to both Bill and Alec Berg. You know, they, they both created the show together and, and it very much is exactly what Bill Hader wanted the show to be from the get-go. You know, I, really? I, I, yeah, absolutely. I mean, this was another scenario where you know, Bill had not directed anything, and 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 I only did the pilot. I didn't do the, the didn't do the series. Mm -hmm. But um, you know, when you're setting up a pilot, it's kind of like the it's kind of like a mini feature in a way. You know, you have a little more time to prep it, and you're really kind of trying to nail the tone and the feeling of what the whole show is ultimately, hopefully, going to be. Yeah. I mean, I think I was I was actually working on Disaster Artist at the time, and I think Seth and Evan actually gave a tip to Bill to meet with me. Oh, wow. And I think on a weekend while we were shooting, I went down and met with him and we just hit it off right away. You know, I think we had like a, we ended up having like a three hour 
meeting that just kind of felt like hanging out, talking about movies. Oh, wow. And uh, we just hit it off really well. And I think part of that was just that we wanted, and everything that he described that he wanted is ultimately, I think, the show that he's created. You know, he wanted this dark sense of tone. He wanted it to be darkly funny. And he wanted the violence to be really real and uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, so that when it hits, you sort of are reminded that this is a real dangerous situation. And, you know, we referenced a lot of like, yeah, I feel like the Coen brothers do it really well. I mean, I feel like it's kind of like we were definitely using them a lot as a touchstone in terms of like tone and shooting style, you know, a lot. And a lot of what they do is use wider lenses a little bit closer. And that was something that we, that we did. I mean, we shot single camera for the whole um, pilot. We didn't, I don't know if we even had a second camera. We might've. It's been a while. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's the thing, too. It's like we shot the pilot, and I don't think the series came out until two years after we shot the pilot. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, like we shot the pilot, a year went by, then they shot the season, then a year went by, and then it like actually premiered. Oh, wow. It, it, I it's had it's no interesting idea. how like the timing but, can work out sometimes. But it's way. like a movie that, ten, or excuse me, it's a TV series that inhabits two very distinctly different worlds. So it's like a hitman story, like a super dark hitman story. And then we're spending all this time in like, theater theater class yes acting classes in inside theaters and they and somehow you make the two worlds feel like they coexist in the same universe somehow well i think the trick to doing that is just treating both of them exactly the same um style wise Mm -hmm. and letting the characters really sort of guide that world on the acting side which they do i mean all all of those all every acting uh character all the uh, the whole like studio that's part of the like the troupe or whatever i mean they're all such a very specific kind of stereotype of you know almost every non-working actor you see out there (laughs) it comes down to it in such a in such a delightful way and i think they really bring that out you know um we've we always wanted it to be from barry's perspective and and i think that those scenes still are very much Mm -hmm. it's just that he's always sort of a fish out of water in these different scenarios and it's just that he's the fish that's sort of attracted to the new pool he's jumped into you know and um we just uh we just i tried to maintain it being dark i mean again it was something that like i was maybe saying before in terms of comedy just ignoring that it's a comedy and letting it be a little more of a dramatic almost thriller like that was kind of the the approach for me visually at least it definitely feels that way yeah and uh, let's also talk about Can You Ever Forgive Me? Because I feel like up until now, a lot of your films are kind of defined by a genre to a degree. So, you know, they're horror or they're comedy. But Can You Ever Forgive Me is like a character drama starring one of the funniest uh, actors alive, Melissa McCarthy. And Richard E. Grant, who is nominated for an Oscar for the work. And it, and to me, it's like an interesting turn for your career because it's it, because it doesn't exist in, in the world of genre. It's kind of like the story is just the story as you're telling it. How did you approach that? Did you did you find it up until now? I feel like you've had genre conventions to play with, but that's not really a movie that has genre conventions. It, it's hard to sort of tell the complete story of Can You Ever Forgive Me without talking about um, the diary of a teenage girl as well. So it's the same director oh, okay. and, and um, who also is uh, Marielle Heller, who also happens to be uh, Yorma Taconi's wife, who directed MacGruber and Popstar. Oh. So like we're all like family friends nice. you know, at this point. So she and Diary was her first movie. And we did that together up in San Francisco. It was a very small, intimate, like, you know, million dollar movie that we made. And it was also very, very dramatic and specific. And that was something that really kind of attracted me to it. But also because it was just something I hadn't done as much of for sure. Yeah. But what that movie really had was like sort of this, um, we really 
try to unearth this like intimate quality about it, which was something that we were definitely rolling into Can You Ever Forgive Me? So Can You Ever Forgive Me comes around. This is Mari's second movie. And uh, it, we thought that we were going to shoot it the same way as Diary, you know, not handheld. Diary is very handheld and very um, like almost voyeuristic in the way that uh, of the approach. This one was more like, uh, I don't know, classic? Maybe yeah. way to put it. Like we, we were looking at lots of like old like Woody Allen stuff, and you know we wanted like a very specific time in New York. It takes place in 1991, which you know is really hard to recreate on a kind of a shoestring budget. You know when it comes down to it, because New York is like might as well be Disneyland compared to what it was in like the late 80s, early 90s. Like it was still used to be like that was like Taxi Driver in New York yeah. existed then <laughs> still. So we wanted to have something that existed in that world, but also had sort of a nostalgic feeling for it at the mm-hmm. same time. Um, you know, it's, it takes place in the winter and we really wanted it to feel like very warm and kind of cozy and almost, um, I don't know, almost like you can kind of taste what the air feels like in some of these spaces. You know, it's, it's, it's small apartments and bookstores and it was cold outside. So I let that be very blue and I didn't have a clear formula in my mind, even for that movie, which I normally do in terms of like comparing two or three movies, uh, to like figure out what it should be. I just didn't know where to place this movie. So it kind of just went on instinct just across the board, just to sort of let it shape itself. Well, and even in the diary way. of a teenage girl, I feel like there is kind of a genre of coming of age that it's playing with, uh, yeah. as, as a style as in, in its storytelling and in its visuals. But can you ever forgive me? I f- like, I mean, I do feel like there's like a strong rooting of character in a lot of, in a lot of your work. Like, I feel like the, the, this was the one that kind of, when I was thinking about it, like I, I was wondering if that was the one that kind of connected all the other stuff because it, it because you're creating a space where the characters are interacting and it, and it feels like a real space and you don't as an audience member. Um, and I saw it again, like I had a brand new baby. So I, I saw it on an Academy of screener. I, I would have gone to see it in the theater, but it's the kind of movie where the cinematography kind of doesn't draw attention to itself, but then you realize that it's, it's, it's guiding the way you're feeling about all of, you know, the claustrophobia or whatever of the Melissa McCarthy character. So, it, so it's definitely a driving storytelling force, but it's a little bit less, uh, it's not, projecting a voice in in your face it's kind of letting you react to it as an audience member which is again a little different from from a lot of those other movies well it's um i mean i feel like you put it in in a good way in terms of like the uh, the camera work is trying to like get out of the way Mm -hmm. and and to be honest i unless we're going for something super stylized and very specific that's tend that tends to be my my jumping off point is i don't really want to be in the way of it if Mm -hmm. it can be like i got i mean to be honest i feel like if you're looking at something that i've done and you go wow that's a cool shot like i feel like i've failed if that makes sense. Yeah, but like I, you I were saying you about like MacGruber, for instance, like I do feel like in, in a MacGruber kind of a thing, the cinematography is in on the joke, at least. Yeah. Like it's it's creating the world of the joke. And a lot of the comedy that you did, you were you, you, you were kind of doing that. Whereas I feel like there's a kind of a more restrained quality, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I just, I wanted it to feel naturalistic and mm-hmm. real, but still cinematic, you know, as much as it could be with where we were. But like... I definitely didn't want to do it. I wasn't trying to be flashy. And if anything, I was making it look ugly. Like I wasn't, um, we wanted Lee Israel to look like a real person. And Melissa McCarthy was fabulous and trusted us in this way where we were shooting her in a way that wasn't flattering, to be honest. Yeah. And, and, and like, I think that was definitely scary for her and for good reason. Like it's, it's not easy to get up there and do that. But we stuck to it and she stuck with it. She let us do it. And it really helped us allow the film, I think, to also kind of, have that sort of realistic even isolation on her part within her apartment I'm always interested in cinematographers who move into directing uh, like what did, I mean and you've you've directed other stuff 
so directing. So uh, directing is, is definitely something that I think I've always had a, um, I think I've always assumed that's where I would either not, I don't want to say end up, but at least try. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, Seth and Evan, who came to me to direct a movie, I wasn't really pitching myself to them as a director, even though it's something that I was interested in doing. But I think that, you know, I've not only have, have, have I worked with them a lot, I've worked with a lot of first time directors, which um, over the last 10 years, and I've always loved it, to be honest. You know, I like it, I think that some DPs can try to avoid that if they can, just for the sake of not having to be as much of a teacher, maybe while they're mm-hmm. shooting. I've never really felt that way. I've, always, I've still always very much felt like the collaborative but I, I know that I was definitely leaned on in terms of like blocking and, 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 and the shots to tell the scene and how it's going to edit and cut together and how to protect different people for their scene to cut together in this way that it's going to tell it hopefully properly. And then also just how to tell the story. You know, I think that's ultimately kind of what I like the most. You know, I like, I like that more than shooting, more than, <laughs> more than lighting and lenses, you know, whatever. Well, you, can, you can figure all that out, but it's really just like the scene and the story that is what uh, ultimately sings in this way that anyone cares about. Um, so anyway, they, they got me in the mix for this movie and, uh, I mean, I'm so happy they did. I mean, it's this, uh, tentatively right now we're calling it, uh, an American pickle. We'll see if that sticks, but it's about a, um, Eastern European, uh, Jewish immigrant who moves to America with his pregnant wife a hundred years ago. And he gets a job, gets a job at a pickle factory in Brooklyn and accidentally falls in and gets trapped in pickle brine for a hundred years. And then he gets discovered, he wakes up, he's still alive, he's the same age, it's like a Rip Van Winkle story. Scientists are like, yep, science makes sense. Like, it's just very much a fantasy. And, uh... Wait a minute, who's your DP on this? John Gulisarian. I'm looking at your, like, crazy um, I, I'm uh, like, poster right now. God, I'm, proud I'm like, of, this, uh, proud this of sounds work. extremely familiar. I was like, wait a minute. I was waiting for the appropriate moment. I didn't think you were going to have this epiphany just now, but we just interviewed yeah, John. Yeah, we, like, we interviewed him. Oh, you did? Like three weeks ago. Yeah. Oh, man, John is the best. I love working with him. He's, um, yeah, he's, he's uh, uh, and he was, all the DPs, uh, if you look at the Cam Noir uh, site where we have all of our uh, all of our episodes, they're all like serious and pointing. He's like, I'm sending a picture of me smiling. <laughs> Oh man, I just had, I just did this thing where they were taking stills of me and they asked me to put my hand on my face and I was like, no. I mean like, yeah, you know, like the, no, the pensive, like, you oh. know, you're resting your hand like oh. on your yeah. knuckles thing. I hate that. Anyway. <laughs> um, so, but yeah, John did great. Um, I know, I know John through his wife, you know, Teresa Gulasarian's a great production designer and we did neighbors two together. So, oh, wow. I, so I knew John socially really through that. But um, we're starting to get to the complex tapestry of of all the DPs who know each other. Yeah, I mean, it, it usually you can just say it's us drunk at the AOC Awards. That's really how we all know each other <laughs> when it comes down to it. But because um, none of us work together, like we never, we're rarely on the same set. Well, how do you it's so like, so as someone who has so much extensive experience as a DP, how do you go about choosing a DP? Like that's got to be. A, a, that's got to be hard for you. That's got to be daunting for somebody who's coming in to shoot for you. You know, it was actually weirdly hard to find a DP for this. I, I actually, I'll say that John, I think, was my one of my first meetings to shoot, and he just felt like the right guy. I just like I could feel like this is the guy mm-hmm. that we're going to hire. He just he's he's got it. He's got the right personality that I know that I can work with. Again, it's like I don't want to work with an asshole, and he's lovely and <laughs> and just and low key, and that's just and just a good collaborator. A collaborator, and I could tell that right away. And he was. But man, DPs don't like comedies. 
a lot of people will not even take the meeting just because it's a comedy. And this isn't just like a, this is such a unique film, I think. I mean, I'm biased, but like it's written by Simon Rich, who I think is a really brilliant comedy writer. And, you know, this movie's technically challenging as well. You know, Seth, you know, plays the, uh, the old guy who falls into the pickle vat and when he wakes up and discovers that his whole life and world is gone He learns that there's a great grand has a great grandson alive in Brooklyn And he moves in with him and it becomes this generational comedy between the two and Seth plays both parts So it's like a um, you know, it's like a technical challenge as well. It's like dead ringers. Yeah um, <laughs> But it's like it has it's the dead ringers of pickle movies. It's just um I don't know. It's it's not it's not your average stoner comedy by yeah. any means, and I think it's gonna may, hopefully open people's eyes up to what Seth's capabilities are. I think he's phenomenal in this movie, but it's I don't know. I feel like I feel like like certain established DPs were sort of turning their nose up at oh. the process a little bit. That was kind of the vibe I was getting, which was a little bit of a bummer. That's too bad. Um, and you know, maybe, maybe not be true, but that was definitely how I felt in the yeah. process. Whether or not people were uninterested in meeting with me because I was a DP, I don't know. You know, I'm like, I, I don't really know a lot of other DPs, but like, I, I just, I mean, I, I know a handful, but, uh, like I'm not someone to step on someone's toes. At least I think John might have a different opinion, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> you know, I feel like we speak the same language so I can at least articulate more clearly what it is that I want specifically. And then that puts us on a higher level to jump off of, to try to figure out something and what to do. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I definitely set every frame. You know, like, I feel like that's something that I probably might never let go of because it's like that's how I sort of think of how the whole scene has to come together. And it's like we'll set a frame and they'll set the camera and they'll do the lighting. And but we're, we're definitely collaborative and figure it out yeah. together. So I don't know. I'm sure that's intimidating to other people. Like, I, I don't know. Personally, I wouldn't be intimidated to working with another DP as a director. I would just take it as another fun challenge to do, hoping that it works out for the best. But <laughs> maybe it's just personalities. Are you going to stick uh, with a directing track after this, do you think? I, I don't know. You know, I love... I love shooting. Yeah, I mean, at this point, I've spent 20 years building a career to, to get where I have, and, and I love it. And I don't want to abandon it necessarily, but I had a really good time making this movie. And mm-hmm. I'm going to try to use this opportunity as much as I can to see if I can get my foot in the door doing it. If I can, yeah, I will. Um, I'm not opposed to shooting, though, also. I still have friends I like to work with, and there's people I want to you know collaborate with. And we'll see where it leads. I mean, who knows? That's great. So uh, I think that's a good place to stop. Is there any place people can find your work online if they're if they want to know more, see more of your work? Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, I have a um, a website which is just brandontrost.com. It, it has trailers for all the movies I've done. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and then it has you know music videos and commercials throughout my career and different links for different things. Um, but you know, when it comes down to it, like. It's, even that isn't as complete as just going to IMDb and seeing what I've done if you're interested in seeing something. <laughs> There's so it, much it's stuff a lot of reading. The cracks it, it, it's, in there. it's a little shocking how many movies you shot. <laughs> I don't, yeah, I just, I was, I was very busy for a lot of years. <laughs> um, and then I started directing a movie and it's just slowed down to a crawl. So here we are. <laughs> are you on uh, Instagram or Twitter, any of the many social medias? Uh, yeah, I'm on uh, Twitter. I have, uh, I think it's, I think it's B underscore T R O. Betro was a character from this movie, the FP that my brother and I directed years ago. Oh, cool! <laughs> but yeah, weirdly enough, don't don't do Instagram as much. As crazy as that sounds, you'd think I would. I don't know. I take pictures every day at work. It almost like is like <laughs> less fun just to do on my own. I gave it the office. Mm-hmm. Anyway, well, thank you so much for coming out. It's great stuff. I could talk to you for five more hours. Oh yeah, thanks for having me. This has been a blast. So that was director of American Pickle and DP, uh, Brandon Trost. Thank you so much again for being on the show. That was so much fun. 
So we should follow up with him and find out, like, so is he is directing, like, his thing now? Is that is that the is direction gonna he's going in? Yeah. Is it going to stick? Is he going to do more DP? We, who knows? We're going we, to get him for Crank 3. Did they make Ooh. a Crank 3? So. I love Crank 2 so much. And now, short ends. So now it is our time for uh, short ends. Ilya, what you got? What's your obsession this week? Oh, man. Sony took five years to come up with a sequel to what might be their most popular mirrorless camera ever, which is the A7S II. It just rolls off the tongue, Alpha 7S II. I'm a big fan of that camera, actually. I've I've shot on that camera a lot with the Atomos uh, Shogun and and kind of live documentary kind of stuff. And I think it's uh, an amazing full-frame camera for that kind of material. It's a bee's knees camera. People love that camera. Well, a couple of days ago, they announced the A7S 3 and I actually found out I'm going to get to put hands on it tomorrow. It's going to come into the oh, shop. Sweet. We're all going to play with it. But based on the sample footage and other stuff that they're showing, I know that this is already a, a home run. This camera has got uh, a lot of people really excited. We've had, I won't say we broke records with pre-orders, but we got a lot of pre-orders for this camera. If you were sort of a just starting out person looking for a camera to do all kinds of stuff and having incredible features, incredible quality, and have $3,500 in your in your pocket or your bank account or under the mattress, this is probably your jam. You it's a, just knock over a liquor store. You, you, you could. You can, you can do it. <laughs> Carjack. You know, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. But no, $3,500 sounds like a lot. It's probably month's rent for for people out there this is not this is not a cheap thing yeah i mean it's 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 also like a terrible time to be laying money out on uh the yeah terrible time worst worst time you know uh in the world but if but i can't tell you this is los angeles i see so many people driving around with their brand new cars and their paper license plates these days and my god oh yeah it's ridiculous i can't tell you how many people i see driving around new cars so yeah yeah Yeah, but Anyway, I mean, I, I saw some sample footage from that, I believe, on uh, the artist formerly known as Cinema 5D. I think they just changed their <laughs> name to Cinema D. Yes. Um, yeah. uh, here's a pro tip, by the way. When you're naming your website that's going to cover like current events in technology, don't name it after a piece of technology because it'll eventually be obsolete. Anyway, I know you're not uh, Cinema 5D isn't necessarily your go to place, but they uh, they got a pre pre-release. Yeah. Yeah, pre-release version of the camera, and they shot some stuff in Japan, like in the dark of night, and up to the ISO. And I was like, well, you know, when you when it's like they show like what the eye sees, and then they showed the footage, and it's like the in the middle of the night, it almost looked like just overcast day footage. Like the I I, I can't believe like where I, I want to know where they're getting color information from. Because as you know, when stuff gets darker, there's just less color information. That That's true. It, it is really impressive. It is one of the most impressive cameras for this sort of thing. I will also say, though, that that sort of really high ISO shooting is a bit of a parlor trick. Most people are not going to do that, but it certainly does get a lot of, of wow factor. But it's factor. nice to know, like, if you're doing, like, nighttime shooting on the streets, that you won't need to, you know, fly an 18K on a condor to get enough light to get an exposure. I will tell you what's far more impressive to me is the fact that even though it has a, what's known as a rolling shutter, there's very little artifacts from it. It's very much like a a global shutter camera where you can move yeah, it and yank it all they around. Showed, they showed footage from that. So uh, compare that to uh, what's the Panasonic camera that's roughly the equivalent of this? It's the, the S1H. Yeah, the S1H, which is, for my money, currently the best 
sort of full frame yeah, mirrorless camera. You showed me some footage that you had done on it, and I thought it was gorgeous. And I've always been a fan, personally, of Panasonic's color science and the way it, uh, every Panasonic camera has rendered skin tones. I don't know what I'm talking about. I don't know if they have you know completely different technologies for doing this, but I'm going all the way back to the original Vericam in like 2000 versus the Sony F900, which was you know those were the the first two commercially available HD cameras uh, that were widely available anyway. And I always thought the Vericam looked like it just looked nicer. The skin tones oh, and oh stuff yeah. looked better. Uh, there, there's people who still are a part of the Vericam Admiration Society back from that original uh, camera. And I, I myself found myself on a panel once where uh, impromptu three or four of the people just started saying, oh man, do you remember the colors on that camera? Those are the best colors. Well, even the yeah. new Vericam, when we shot season two of 20 Seconds to Live, uh, George Foyt shot it and he shot it on the new Vericam. And I mean, it just, it's, no, it's just incredible. a gorgeous looking camera. But I mean, obviously when we're, when we're comparing a, a DSLR. You want to you know how they rank well like a dslr versus you know a professional level camera it's it's kind of hard to compare those two things and yet i find that a lot of these uh, like this current generation of dslrs so uh the footage i've seen of the a7s mark iii uh that footage that you showed me of that panasonic and then also that new canon camera you were talking about a few weeks ago like all of those cameras are creating footage that i mean certainly would intercut just fine with any professional level camera no, I mean there are they are professional level cameras, but you know what I mean, like filmmaking cameras, Alexas and and uh, Venices and et cetera, et cetera. You can get away with an awful lot. Never before have you been able to get more from for so little. Uh, mm-hmm. I I will say that everyone is making high quality stuff, and we are not exactly splitting hairs, but in some regards, uh, the cameras are getting so good that you are it's hard to make a bad choice in these different price points you have certain functional advantages for going up the ladder and choosing something better but really what you know you've done a great job of of, of taking me off my game here and talking about all these other cameras but what i was going to say is that the a7s3 uh, despite not being an, an easy camera to say, it is an easy camera to love. Mm. I mean, the the images that it's producing are really, really nice, and they rival what I would say are some of the, the best cameras right now at that at that price point. It doesn't have all the same features as like a Panasonic S1H. It doesn't have the same features as a Canon R5, but it is an incredible, incredible camera, incredible value, and uh, you're going to see a lot of it just because Sony has a massive following, and it's an incredible still camera. If you just want a great still camera, that this will this will do that for you with amazing autofocus. And well, and it's not like an insane. I mean, the, the price when I, when I even bring it up, it's like we're living in a time right now where we're basically going into an economic depression as a result of COVID nineteen, and so probably unless you have a specific job lined up for it, you don't have thirty five hundred dollars lying around. But $3,500 for a professional level camera is nothing. I mean, that's, that's yes. nothing. It's an amazing, an amazing price point for that camera. And if you have any other full frame uh, lenses or whatever, like, you know, like I've got a bunch of 5D Mark, Mark II uh, lenses and, and stuff, like you can easily adapt all of those to go on that camera. You know, I hope that there are people out there who do have thirty five hundred dollars to to spend on a camera right now. In fact, well, I'm, you would. I mean, you sell these cameras. I, so that I do. Makes perfect but, sense. Yeah. But there, it's, there are still enlightened self interest. There were there was a million there was a million people who filed for unemployment last week in in California. I mean, it's like it's we don't we don't have like good jobs numbers and things happening right now. But yeah. 
Uh, and, and you and I talked about this off mic a little before we started rolling. Uh, the industry starting to come back. There is work that's happening. I am seeing stuff. I think you told me you've got that something. was almost our close focus was yeah. talking about the industry starting to come back. I, yeah, I was going to tell you, I, uh, I have my first actual shoot that I'm doing uh, probably a week from today. And, and I think that, that when we're talking about tools like this, these tools are not just necessarily like a luxury purchase. This isn't something you buy and it's an affectation you stick on oh, the shelf no. or you put under your, your bed. It's really, it's it's a way for you to generate money. It's a way for you to express a creativity. And so uh, I really am hoping, uh, not just because of my own self-interest and because, you know, the, that my, my company sells these cameras, but that people are able to get to work and they are able to express the, their, you know, their own creativity and that more and more voices emerge from this time of people being shut in and you know being alone with their thoughts so i mean this is going to be our 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 close focus in like three years but like the stories that are going to come out of this moment Hmm. uh, when people start kind of talking like when when we hit the vein of okay we're at we're in the clear or getting to be in the clear enough that we can start living this out. Like we're going to be unpacking this year for the rest of our lives. This is, I, I, I'm sure that there are going to be other years where like crazy insane things happen, but my God, nothing else has ever been, nothing even comes close to this year. And so it'll be interesting to see what people make. That is obviously not what you're talking about. Uh, but and, and, and it is to it, by, extent, by no means am I implying that an a seven S Mark three is a luxury item. I think it's uh it, these th- I, I've made I've, I've gotten a lot of work even out of my old 5D. I mean, like these these are professional tools that can make professional level stuff. My friend Kevin Mord uh, made a whole feature on the A7S Mark II, I believe, and uh, uh, it looked great. And Mark Stoleroff made Driver X, which I highly recommend. Yeah. You can watch on Hulu uh, if you want to see what that sort of thing looks like. And man, it looks great. It really does. I look think good. that. With DSLR filmmaking, the compromises tend to be made on the shooting side, but the audience doesn't have to meet you halfway. It looks as good as if you do your job, you can make it look as good as any professional project. You know, it's not to say that you're going to shoot an Avengers movie on the A7S Mark III, but there's no reason you couldn't shoot the live action portion of anything on it. You know, like the quality is is that good, and it's that good on pretty much all of those cameras, which is why also you see a lot of those cameras as kind of B, C, D, crash cam, whatever, on, on major shows that you that are using the Alexa or the Venice or whatever. If you ever watch the television series Scandal, anytime you ever saw the Oval Office, that was shot on a hot rod camera's modified 7D for, I think, the entire season. They mounted it up Whoa. on the ceiling, and it pointed straight down, and there was always these shots of people walking across the floor. It was a you know $1,700 camera with a $3,000 modification to it. That's so. pretty sweet. I mean, yeah. I still remember when House... Shot oh, yeah. a whole a whole uh, episode on the on the, on yeah. the 5D, and it was like, you know, watching it, it just looked like another episode of House, shot by uh, was it Gail Tattersall that shot that? I that believe series? that's correct. Yeah, yeah. And you know, I mean, it just looked like another episode. You didn't even question it and up until then. I believe that show had been shot on film, and uh, I was like, okay, well, it's over. <laughs> There's little things that you can look for, but really what we're talking about to the common audience person is splitting hairs. Most people aren't. aren't well, also, it. like, by the time you see something broadcast on television, it's been compressed. So, mm-hmm. you know, any artifacts that you might find in that. But these newer cameras, you're going to have a harder time pixel peeping and finding those artifacts because the compression schemes are so awesome. And because they're, you know, they're giving you raw formats and log formats that uh, are designed for color grading, which obviously like the, the first generation DSLRs didn't even imagine people would ever do that. And and frankly, there are, is still massive differences in post-production and workflow and quality when you start talking about, you know, higher end cameras and formats 
But for what reaches most people, what most people see, they're going to be hard pressed to see the difference. It really, you know, it, it, it's really, it's not easy. So Ben, hey, tell me what, what's your short end this week? What do you, what do you got going on? My short end is I just watched uh, on HBO, and I guess if you have HBO Max, I'm assuming it's on there. Uh, it's a documentary series called I'll Be Gone in the Dark. And it's about, uh, it's kind of, it's, it's very interestingly structured documentary on two tracks. On the one track, it's talking about the Golden State Killer, who was also, uh, he, he was, uh, was he recently, what uh, was the Golden State Killer? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Sorry, uh, yeah. Uh, no, but, I, but Patton I, Oswalt I'm, has a connection to this, right? He's got, he's, well, he's yeah, featured. Well, he's, Patton Oswalt is in it uh, because his wife, Michelle McNamara, basically, she was a true crime writer and she became obsessed with the Golden State Killer. In fact, she coined the name Golden State Killer. And she was the one who kind of, uh, it, it reminds me of Jake Gyllenhaal's character in Zodiac, like mm. just wouldn't give it up just like dug and dug and dug and dug and went and talked to the cops and and went through all the evidence and she was sure that she was going to be able to find this guy and you know this before you even watch it she uh she did she died of like a freak medical condition that she didn't know she had uh before she finished the book Mm. um but her book did actually presage and to certain degrees help catch the guy who recently pled guilty. If she hadn't written this book, he would never have been found. And it's just a, a compelling story because on the one track, they're kind of retelling the true crime, kind of the, the true crime podcast, you know, the My Favorite Murder of the Golden State Killer. And you're kind of getting firsthand interviews and firsthand uh, stuff about that. And then on the other track, you're kind of, they're telling the Michelle McNamara story and uh, like Patton Oswalt is in it a lot. And, you know, Patton Oswalt is an amazing comedian and really funny and brilliant. But that's not what he's here to do. And, uh, you know, if you watch his stuff, he's got a couple of he's done two specials on Netflix since his since uh, his wife died. Um, And you kind of know the pain that he just walks around with. But with this, you don't even see him trying to make it funny. You're just kind of seeing it very stripped raw. It's a beautiful looking documentary, I think. And it's I think it's four or five episodes. And uh, even though I kind of already knew the story a little bit from hearing interviews with Pat Oswalt and also listening to maybe a few too many true crime podcasts. I found it uh, just really gripping on both tracks. And it's one of those things where like, as they're coming up in, in the chronology of it to McNamara dying, like it's so heartbreaking, you know, it's like she's married, she has this beautiful daughter uh, and she and Pat Oswalt have this amazing relationship and she's like really obsessed and fixed on this thing. And you really want to see her succeed. But you know, from the time you start, she doesn't survive to even see the book published. Uh, but Pat Oswalt finishes the book for her uh, like him. And, and she has like some people who she collaborated with who kind of get it all done so that her stuff can kind of make it out and, you know, it, it, it's an example, I think, uh, in, in a way, like a Joe Berlinger kind of a situation where Joe Berlinger made, um, you know, the, the Paradise Lost movies that got the West Memphis Three out of prison because they were unjustly uh, thrown in jail. This is sort of like that for in reverse. <laughs> this is this is about someone who was like trying to find a murderer who was very close to doing it, didn't make it. And uh, but her work enabled uh, justice to happen so it, it's a pretty amazing uh, show I, I can't recommend it highly enough 
you'll, you'll have to excuse my, my levity, but it's like, it's, it's so dark, but it is also so touching too. I, I've not actually been able to, uh, I've not actually been able to, to bring myself to watch it. I was a big fan of Patton Oswalt's book, you know, which, which is all very light called zombie spaceship wasteland. Uh, it's, it's, it's quite good. I recommend giving it a listen if you, um, you know, have an audible credit that you, that mm. you don't know what to spend it on, but it sounds like she basically identified and uh, she had identified the killer, which is kind of like, she didn't, she didn't identify him, but she helped them find like her research helped them find him. And it was actually, uh, they were able to figure out that using genetic genealogy, I think that's what it's called. They were able to figure out like, okay, well it's down to like these five people. And so once they were able, and literally just by triangulating, they had some genetic material of his, which is super disgusting, but they were able to (laughs) take the genetic material, upload it and figure out who was related to him and how distantly they were related to him. And they were able to triangulate who he was and he'd been a cop. Yeah, wow. I mean, it's, it's it's just an insane story. Well, well, Patton Oswalt has all of the uh, the the chops to be able to handle this. I, I'm sure in a way that is a fitting tribute to his his wife and um, also to uh, you know to make this uh, documentary a success. And so I'm really enthusiastic to uh, to hear your review of this. I do plan to watch it at some point when I'm ready to uh, when I'm ready to go down into the darkness so <laughs> i'm already there man I'm just like hanging out i'm like oh yeah hey there's a funny guy in this i'll, I'll watch that i assume he's guy. not being funny so he is not being funny yeah. at all yeah okay. but it, i mean like you know you kind of walk away I, I don't know I, I i have my reasons to believe Patton oswalt is an awesome person to begin with um uh, the short version of of my random story is after my son was born um, Alicia and I, for like one of the first times we wanted to do a date night, we were going to go see Pat Oswalt perform mm. at Largo out here in LA and, um, and it was sold out. And so our, our friend Maral, who is a stand up comedian herself, sent a Twitter, uh, she tweeted out on Twitter, like, Hey, any of my comedian friends have an extra ticket for this show? Patton Oswalt tweeted back. He doesn't know us. Mm. We don't know him. Yeah. He tweeted back and he's like, I'll put them on the list. They're comped in what yeah and so like our first main like date wow. night after after our son was born was going to see uh going to see it was Patton oswald and blaine capatch and a bunch of like amazing comedians performing and uh and some a, of that's a great place to see it that's a great place to oh, see yeah. anything like that because it's yeah remember it's, when we would like slightly go bigger sit, than my bedroom sit, so sit in like... the theater and, and and watch uh <laughs> watch uh stand-up comedians on a stage sitting next to strangers breathing all their air man mm. sounds terrifying <laughs> anyway um, i remember 2019 well <laughs> <laughs> and, and the beginning of 2020 um but no i mean you know Pat oswald i i think is kind of well known for being like just a a, a furiously decent person mm. and uh he he kind of wears his decency on his sleeve in this documentary so anyway i'm gonna stop I, i'd love to have phrases. him on, i'd love to have him on the show I, I think it'd be so much fun so oh my god it'd be great it'd be a dream he's yeah. amazing yeah and, and and you know besides you, you probably should since you own for those tickets <laughs> i'll send him i'll send him 40 bucks Anyway, so Ilya, who do we need to thank tonight, today? Uh, let, let's thank our amazing team that made this show possible. Uh, let, let's thank Alana Cody, who I, I've said it before, I'll say it again, the uh, Furiosa of the Cinematography <laughs> Podcast. She's producing, she's all the producing, she's she's kicking all the butts and making it all The happen. hardest working producer in all of podcast Boom. land. Boom. Mic drop, right. the end. All right. Yeah. 
And 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 by contrast, Kay Zalatrachi, who did incredible work like three years, seven, ten, however many years ago yeah. it was for our show. I think never it was had, 1978. Never had to lift another finger. Never had to do any more work for us. And uh, and he's and offered. He's offered. Oh, has he really? Uh, yeah, yeah. Right. He said that he would record us. Uh, like if we wanted a rebrand, he would. Yeah, he, let's he'd, let's he'd do that. Of, let's let's get him to do a new, you know oh, all these other like you know I, I like our music. You I know think what? It's really good. Music. All these other like knockoff podcasts of ours are even have music that sounds like ours so i think it's time to rebrand they do so should we have like a uh, klezmer music or something we should <laughs> i i was gonna say maybe like the theme to um ren and stimpy or something i don't know something like uh <laughs> i say we go with a 1980s john carpenter synth score Ooh, 1980s yeah. we kind of have a little john carpenter right now though really i think we have more junk. of like a evangelist night i mean it's it's <laughs> synthy but it's more of like a blade runner and theme credit crawl music. all right that that's fair maybe we can get like some sort of like uh hawaiian jazzy ukulele sort of thing i know he loves that's jazz. a good idea yeah 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 well hey to listeners the uh, tell us tell us what genre of music you'd like our uh, our our new theme if we do it yeah so you, you know you're mocking k's but even as we speak he's uh, fixing my computer so <laughs> yes but it, but you did that to yourself so really you it's true you, 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 it's knew, true. you knew that going in so so really he's uh, he's paying his debt to us by fixing your computer uh okay let's thank ben cats no, no debt to us the debt is all in the other direction anyway and then lastly we need to thank ben cats who hopefully edited out all that stuff we just said yeah lastly but not leastly so you know you did say lastly mr cats thank you for making us not sound like total the total idiots that we are yeah it's kind of late and we're a little punchy yeah a little punchy uh before we go please like and subscribe if you uh if the spirit moves you say a couple of words on uh, the itunes store or whatever your your podcast app of choice is it really does draw more people to the show and it it helps us and uh you know visit our website you know see the show notes click on a link to a sponsor you know do do that fun stuff go shop at hot rod cameras All, all that stuff is is awesome well, yeah, follow yeah. us on, uh, you know, LinkedIn or whatever. Yeah, LinkedIn. We're on LinkedIn. Go, go, you can do that. I'm, on, do I'm totally on LinkedIn. I, I have no shame about being on LinkedIn. We're super linked. <laughs> I'm, I'm linked like a motherfucker. Anyway, so, uh, but that's it. And uh, we will see you next week at the Cinematography Podcast. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Listener.